0: Welcome to a new episode of the Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where my partner Joe Favorito and I talk about the business of sports with all kinds of interesting people, executives, miscellaneous personalities, uh, Faci- athletes. We're going to talk about facilities, maybe, investor, maybe at one point. Investors, so, yeah, and we Canadian. try to cover we try to cover all the different topics that comprise the sports business. And one topic we have not covered. I don't think, have we? No, uh, not It's a subject which is really important and big topic in this business of facilities management. So, to have that discussion...
1: Hey, before we do that, Tom, yeah. let's give a shout out to Maurice. Oh, yes. Go ahead. So, you say it. So, Maurice Eisenman, if you're listening to this in the middle of June, uh, was or- married this past weekend. Uh, will now um, move his office. Is still keeping his job. Working for the WAM, WAM Networks. Networks. Yep. So we wanted to wish Maurice all the best on his, uh, his next step. Mazel tov, Maurice.
0: That's a great story. And uh, thank you uh, for all the hard work you've yep. you provided for us. And you being an
1: aficionado, aficionado of music. So he had a massive band at his wedding. Uh, this Orthodox Jewish band called Coleplay. <laughs> K-O-L, Col, right? K-O-L, yeah, I saw your tweet. Kol <laughs> is everything you need to know in Hebrew. So it was all songs Hebrew. Oh my God! So it was great. So would they great play movie. pop songs or well-known? You songs, thought they were songs that you knew. But like but what? What's an example? I can't even remember. But it was like it was pretty amazing. Would they so play a a Beatles song or? And it would be in Hebrew. Yes. Cool in the gang hey, celebration Jude. or something. Hey, Jude. So,
0: really? Okay. Hey,
1: Jude. <laughs> it was amazing. So. <laughs> I'm really sorry anyway, I missed that. Anyway,
0: story. here we go back to the podcast. So we have one of the foremost authorities in united states maybe the world on facilities management and uh joe and i are really happy to call him a colleague here at columbia and an original an original yeah an original cast member and staff Mm -hmm. member and faculty member of the columbia program so welcome bill
2: squires thank you guys and uh i guess i am one of those miscellaneous characters that you're having on it but i do appreciate being here and you're right joe I think you're the only one who's got a little bit more senior army You and I are the only two left. The program. Program. Well, so, so wait, let's, <laughs>
0: let's settle this once and for all. Who started here first? I think it was the same semester. So yeah. was, all right, well, let's let's go back and figure it out. It was Cause fall. I've heard For this me, debate. it was
2: fall of 2008.
0: Yeah, same thing. So, okay, so, I, I want to see your papers to, to, to get that straight. I'll send you the little we'll stubs a, that have...
1: Uh, we'll make know. a final rule. Anyway, so yeah.
0: everybody, I forgot to mention that Bill is the founder and head of Right Stuff Consulting, which I think is mostly about the facilities management business, no surprise, um, with some really impressive clients, probably the best known of which is the New York Giants. So Bill's going to talk about that, but Bill, before we get into what you're up to these days and some some of the big issues and trends around facilities management, which is a really interesting topic uh, circa 2018 in the sports business, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background?
2: All right, well, I was uh, born and raised in South Orange, New Jersey, and Eventually was able to attend the United States Naval Academy, graduated many years ago, class 1975, great class of 1975. Uh, upon graduation, I, I went the aviation route, so I became a pilot. I was a P-3 pilot. Uh, P-3s are really no longer around anymore. They've been replaced by the P-8 Poseidon. Uh, but our role during the Cold War was tracking and finding and destroying, if we had to, Russian submarines. So. Uh, In what part of the world? Uh, well, I did uh, North Atlantic, I did the Mediterranean, I did the Atlantic, I did Westpac, I did the Indian Ocean. All over. I mean, it's, Hudson River. It's, 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 <laughs> yeah. it's no, no, Hudson River. But I wasn't on the target list back then. It, it, it is true. The old yeah. axiom: join the Navy and see the world. And I was able to do that. And I spent, uh, you know, I spent 12 years active duty. I was planning on making it a career, uh, but in uh, it was January of 19 uh, 1986, I found out the ship that I was on uh, as a communications officer on the USS John F. Kennedy, which is an aircraft carrier, that we were going down to uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, for a four day rest and relaxation period after we were doing workups and flight ops out off the coast of Florida. And of course, back then, uh, probably the audience doesn't know, but the Yankees used to have their spring training facility down there. And mm-hmm. I played baseball in high school, I played at Navy. I was a left-handed pitcher and the Yankees were my team. And um, with my commanding officer's permission, I uh, made some calls before internet, before cell phones, and was able to get in touch with somebody down at the spring training. And first question I had, I told him, I said, my name is Lieutenant Commander Bill Squires, John F. Kennedy, we're coming into Port Everglades like to get 300 tickets for my crew. And uh, his first comment was, well, Bill, you know, this is an industry. This is a business. We make money by selling tickets, not by giving them away. Wow. Um, And I did my homework, and I knew that Mr. Steinbrenner was born on the 4th of July, 1930. Uh, I knew that he had a company called American Shipbuilding, and I knew that he spent one year in the Air Force. So I kind of threw that at him and said, well, could you at least ask Mr. Steinbrenner? Maybe he would be willing to give us 300 tickets. And then I said, he said, I'll do that. And then in return, I said, would you please... Uh, let Mr. Steinberg know they're inviting ownership, coaches, managers, players, and their families after the USS John F. Kennedy for a VIP tour of a, you know, an aircraft carrier, which is pretty unique. And uh, he said, "Well, Bill, you know, we're pretty busy down here. We're getting in shape for the season, and I, said, I play baseball. You play. You practice two hours a day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> before you even you know start the season." Playing. And he's talking Games to the military play. man. That's not a good yeah. good conversation. So I said, "Would you ask him?" And he says, "I will. Call me back in three days." And. You know, no no internet, no cell phones. I called back in three days, and I figured I'm gonna get the lip service. You know, spoke to Mr. Steinbrenner, but uh, he can't help you out. And on the contrary, was like Bill. I wish I had your number because Mr. Steinbrenner says whatever you guys want, you get. I said wow. So we pull in a port, go out with my assistant communications officer. It was his last uh, last trip at sea on the ship before he's getting transferred. We meet. Uh, I tell this guy Marce Samuels, I need 500 tickets. And he basically said, oh, my God, we can't do that. But let me ask Mr. Steinbrenner. Goes over and talks to this guy, comes back and says, Mr. Steinbrenner says, whatever you want, you get. And I looked over, and it was Mr. Steinbrenner. And I have to stop here, but in my class, I asked my students, if they ever heard of Mr. George Steinbrenner? And they go, yeah, from, they all know him from Seinfeld. They don't know <laughs> who this gentleman right. is and what he did and you know how That's much he classic. paid for the team. But, yeah. but anyhow, um, Mr. Steinbrenner came over, took us down to the dugout. Uh, took us in the locker room and said, you know, guys, really, don't be your best whatever you want you get. And so we get in our two seats. We're sitting right next to the dugout. First time I saw in-seat service, um, the waitress comes up, asks what we want, and we ordered what we wanted. And I said, you know, to my um, my buddy, I said, you know, we we got some really good seats. We're sitting right next to the dugout. He said, you, I said yeah, these are great, said, but look, look who's behind us. It was Lee Iacocca oh my God. and the current president, Donald Trump. And this is like a 1986 before, you know, anybody really knew much about Mr. Trump or President Trump. So, and and the moral of this story is uh, on the night of the game, I asked Mr. Steinbrenner, how do you get in this business? And I had no intention of getting out. I was gonna stay in the Navy, hopefully 30 years, screen for command, have my own squadron. And he says, you know, I wanna hire you. And he gave me his home telephone number. And that's, it was a very difficult decision for me. But in my first class, I always talk about that because if you don't know, you, if you don't ask, you don't know. Yep. you know, having that nice diploma behind your desk. You can't just sit there and wait for the call to come in. You got to go out and pound the pavement
0: yeah. and ask the questions. So. Wow, that is a great story. Yeah. I didn't I is, didn't know that's how you got There the are many business.
2: of the Steinbrenner stories too. He's he's done those little quiet things. So what was that first job? Bill? First, I didn't know what it was going to be until I showed up. I had to I had to extend it. well, I had one more year in the Navy, year and a half, and it was of course on deployment. So I went over to the Mediterranean, was there for 6 months, flew back, Showed up in uh, March of uh, 1997. Didn't know what my job was going to be, and I thought I was going to be assistant director of operations. And uh, so uh, that was, you know, I so didn't you know what it was. So you just took it on faith that they I would did. give you. I did. You know, it was one of those things where I, I wanted to be in professional sports. So I, I made the decision. <clears throat> I didn't care where it was, but they, they, you know, it was a perfect job for me because in the military, everybody's an operator. You just are. And there's nothing I enjoy more than at night crossing stuff off a list. Yeah. And that's the way operators are. And that's the that that's my. Uh, that's my background so I got hired Uh, I was there for two months as the assistant director of stadium operations and I get a call from Mr. Steinbrenner Friday night we're playing the Detroit Tigers it was in May of 87 he says I just want to let you know uh, we're making a change in the the director of stadium operations and you're now going to be the interim interim director they decided to replace uh, my you know decided to let my boss go and but the caveat was you have 30 days to prove yourself and if you can't do the job I'll have to let you go too I said, boy, that Navy career was looking pretty good for a while. That, that Navy career was looking pretty good. and um, But I persevered. I moved in, slept in the suite, you know, took showers down in the Empire's locker room, ate <laughs> up on a grand concourse, and you know, just failure is not an option. So I uh, had that opportunity to work for Mr. Steinberg for three years, and, and from there I went to – I was recruited to go to uh, a giant stadium. So I worked at Gi- – so I went from a natural grass baseball stadium to a synthetic turf football stadium with uh, two NFL teams, the Giants and the Jets. Uh, while I was there, we did everything from World Cup, not Men's World Cup in 94, um, Pope visit in 1995. It was actually the second time I met Pope John Paul II. I had met him at a private audience in uh, 1986 uh, in Rome when we were on, on cruise. Do you remember him? No, he didn't <laughs> remember. I was disappointed by that. Uh, Steinbrenner's but was, guy. That's uh, you yeah. know. <laughs> but uh, I always tell that story. People always ask, who have you met that's cool? I said, well, I met the Pope twice. So that's. Yeah. I guess that's pretty cool. But, uh did that for six years, then went down to Disney World. Uh, we opened a place called Disney's Wild World of Sports, Remember that? which What's is Reggie now, Williams. Is that, Reggie Steve Williams. Williams. Yeah. Reggie Williams was a linebacker for the uh, Cincinnati Bengals. Bengals. Yep. He was the general manager of a team called the uh, New York New Jersey Knights of the World League of American Football. Played at Dartmouth. That, yep, and he played at MetLife Stadium or played at Giants Stadium. Mm-hmm. When he got the job at Disney, uh, we saw met each other at Super Bowl, just just crossing paths. He showed me the layout for Disney's Wild World of Sports. He said, "Would you be interested in interviewing for the GM job?" And I said, "Sure." Interviewed, got the job, went down there for three years, learned an awful lot about marketing, about sponsorships, things that I just didn't really have much experience in. But, you know, you can work at Disney and not really work hard, and you just absorb it, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, did that for three years, then went to Cleveland Browns, Browns, opened up, uh, then it was called Cleveland Browns Stadium, now it's called First Energy Stadium. Was there for one year, Uh, then I was asked to come back to New Jersey to take over as the Vice President General Manager at Giant Stadium. Did that for a couple of years and went on my own because I just, you know, state employee just wasn't getting it done for me. Yeah. yeah.
0: Bill, you got to just go back <coughs> for a second to the to the Steinbrenner experience. Yeah. Because there's stories about him as a manager, as a business manager, are legendary. Right. Any, any specific memories you can share oh. that are entertaining? Yeah, as a matter
2: of fact, in my class, I used to tell the Steinbrenner story every week. And, and if you notice, I never call him George. Right. I never really call him, I call him Mr. Steinbrenner because he gave me. He gave me this opportunity, and it was, uh, you know, it was a great opportunity. And then I started working for him, and uh, his attitude towards me changed, you know, dramatically, just like it did for anybody who worked for him. And it was, it was a hard thing for me to understand because we were as loyal to him as could be, and he could not have been any harder on us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess one story I could tell is when, you know, we knew when he was coming up from Tampa, he would fly into Teterboro, his driver would big him, bring him to uh, Yankee Stadium. <coughs> Excuse me, and I would get a call on my radio. The package has arrived. Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as I heard that the package has arrived, I looked at my watch. And from that point on, I just dependent you knew you were gonna get called into his office. You just knew it. And it was dependent on how long did it take him before he called you into the office to realize how much you know you already yelled at for something. So it was within 15 minutes, he just kinda went in there and just said, okay, it you just Take take a look and keep on ticking. Uh, but was he?
0: But was he a good tough manager? Like, would he pick nah, good issues nah, to was, talk about, nah, or you know, he,
2: I, you know, listen. I'll say this about him without question. I'll defend him, just I think many people have. You would not, if you're a fan of a team, you would want him to be your owner, right. because he cared so much about winning, and he cared so much about the fan. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, he'd get a little irrational, like 11 games in 12 days. He'd see peanuts, you know, shells underneath. Uh, you know, a seat. And he couldn't understand why the building wasn't clean, and then he complained about how much it cost to clean the building. So you kind of <laughs> like, so what do you do? <coughs> but he was, um, but he was, you know, he's, you know, certainly, I'm further away from it now than living under it. But you know, I had just come out of the Navy. Um, you know, I, I, you know, on the ship that that uh, six month cruise we took, we lost four airplanes. eight people died. I mean, that's real life stuff that right. you don't read about. And when Mr. Sternbitter, you know, decided it was time to and you know he would always speak to me in military terms. He would threaten to fire somebody, but he would threaten to court martial me. Mm. You know it was pretty it was it was pretty funny the way the way he would talk to me. But you know it was you know I was accustomed to being in stressful situations, right. really life or death situations. You know, and it was it was tough. But but um, you know I persevered. Uh, it was a you know it was, it was a blessing. I can remember the first time I went to Yankee Stadium as a kid, and now here I am overseeing this place. Uh, unfortunately, back in those days, the team wasn't very good. Um, you know, I, I, I when I mention to people that I managed Yankee Stadium from '87 to '90, you know, I always tell them that. But while I was there for three years, I had five managers. Stump Merrill was somewhere in the mix. Stump Merrill was, was was the last one, last yeah. of the five. It was uh, Billy Martin, Lou Pinella, Dallas Green, Bucky Dent, Stump Merrill. Wow.
0: There were five in a three-year span. And there were five general
2: that. managers, and, and Woody Woodward. Peterson, Sid Thrift, Bob Quinn, and uh, there's one more out there that I have to think about. But yeah, in three years I had five managers and five general managers. So it was uh, it was tough. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I will tell you that um, you know, when I when I worked for the Cleveland Browns, I'll never forget he called me up. He says I right, congratulations on your job with the Browns, and that's where he came from originally. Yep. And he had two sisters who lived up there and he says, I'm gonna get him a suite, would you take care of them? I said, Mr. Steinbrenner, you have don't worry about the thing, I'll take great care of them. And the last time we communicated, I wrote him a letter and told him I had just been elected as the president of the Stadium Managers Association. This is back in 2007, and it was basically, you know, Mr. Steinbrenner, without your, you know, your uh, confidence in me, I wouldn't be where I am today. And he responded with a real nice letter, you know, saying, "Listen, Bill, don't you don't have to thank me. You know, I'm just fortunate I was able to recognize talent. I mean, just a." You know, and I'm saying, where was this love? Where was this love? You know, in 1990, I might still be there and have like five or six rings on my hand. But but he gave me the opportunity, and I'll always be forever grateful for that. And, uh, and I thank him because I would not be here without him. So, Bill,
0: so you started your own business, which which was an interesting move. And talk about how that part of the sports business has evolved because things seem to be really different <coughs> in that world. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, 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 frankly, it's an area, Joe, when you and I were younger in the business, let's say back in the 90s, frankly it wasn't really talked about that no. much as a business component of the sports industry but now it's a crucial part of the ecosystem and i think there's been a lot more attention paid on it because of everything from security issues to technology
2: issues etc so talk about the evolution yeah. of the business listen i'm i'm so grateful i got to work with the yankees and the giants i mean these are my teams growing up as a kid just a dream come true excuse me and i had the opportunity i mean i, I worked at four different venues in a matter of you know, like maybe 12, 13, 14 years. And, and I, I enjoyed it immensely, but I also realized that there were opportunities for me to, to grow even more by going out on my own. So when I did, um, you know, I had the Giants and Jets as clients right off the bat. Uh, I, had, uh, I was working on, you know, the operations for uh, MetLife Stadium. Uh, you know, as a, as a member of the Stadium Managers Association, I had a lot of contacts um, within, you know, venues in the United States, whether it be MLB, NFL, uh, you know, Major League Soccer, you know, Canadian Football League, even some you know, Premier League teams in Europe. And I just realized that there's things that I could bring to the industry that didn't require me to do you know, nine to five. So I did that. And you know, over time, I've, I've, I've done a lot of different things. I, I'm on the National um, Center for Spectator Sports, Safety and Security um, Advisory Board for, for stadiums. Um, I'm on the um, uh, Sports League Sub-Council for the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, which is MLB, NFL, NASCAR, NBA, NHL, uh, uh, PGA Tour—you uh, name it—and we're—I sit with all the senior executive uh, security members of those organizations to work with the DHS on you know things that we think that we need. For example, one of the things we're really working hard on now is a little as drone uh, reg, you know regulations. Because right now there's not a whole mm-hmm. lot you can do. Um, so I've had the opportunity. A whole lot you can do in there's, terms there's of There's not a whole preventing. lot you can do to prevent it. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, what you can do, and I know we're going to talk about technology later on, is, you know, try and find the operator of the, of the drone. That's the only thing you can really do right now. Mm. You can't shoot it down. You can't put geofence. There's things you just can't do to take control of the drone. Right. And, uh, you know, drones can be, you know, not only dangerous because of the payloads they can carry, but you have an inexperienced operator that just flies into a crowd. There was something on the news not the last year at Petco Field. Mm-hmm where, you know, um, a drone flew in. And you read more and more about it. Uh, PGA, uh, this, this weekend, uh, the U.S. Open, there was an individual who flew a drone, over like 120,000 people taking pictures of the golf course. Uh, they couldn't find the individual. But, you know, these things are, are, are dangerous. Wow, so, I didn't hear about that. Did you know? No. Yeah. You know, so there's technology that uh, – so there's a lot of things that we that I, I'm, I'm fortunate to be a part of. And to be able to sit in that room with, the, you know, the senior vice, vice president and chief security officer of the NFL and – and uh, you know Mike Rodriguez from the USTA, and Dennis Cunningham from you know from NHL, and all the senior Jerome Pickett from NBA, and it's it just really it's an eye opener for me, and it's uh, it just it's, it's made me smarter. So I think I bring more to the table now because I've been able to really kind of you know, broaden my horizons. Yeah, and the, did things change dramatically after 9/11? Uh, absolutely. Um, I can speak strictly for Giant Stadium. 9/11, I actually saw uh, the second plane hit that day. Um, Where were you? I was. I was at the stadium. We were shooting a Wendy's commercial on the field. Uh, I was talking to the producer of the commercial. A production assistant came over and said, uh, "A plane just crashed into the World Trade Center." So the first thing I did was I looked up at the sky. As a former naval aviator, it's. A, I mean, it's clear. We call it "cavu to the moon." Clear uh, ceiling of visibility, unrestricted, meaning no clouds, no nothing. I just couldn't understand how a single-engine, twin-engine airplane that might have been just sightseeing up and down the Hudson. Could have hit the World Trade Center. I got in my vehicle, drove out uh, to Spiral Sea at the old Giant Stadium, and looked. He had a great view to Southern Manhattan. Uh, and what didn't register to me was the amount of smoke coming out of the tower. Um, you know, I should have known that a single engine, twin engine plane could not generate that much smoke right. because it doesn't have that much gas. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you saw the second plane at the second tower. So you were looking at you were I on yep. s-
0: yep. uh, Spiral, the yep. spiral thing. At the yep. And
2: yep. I, I went down to my office, closed the door, and I cried because I knew. I knew my young kids, they were three and four years old at the time, would not be have the liberties that I had growing up, and I also knew that uh, there's going to be a lot of service men and service women who were going to, you know, pay for this because right. we just weren't going to let this go. No. But anyhow, you know, we took the week off. Um, you know, everybody gives to Commissioner Tagley-Boo a lot of credit for not playing football that fall weekend. Uh, I'll give him credit, but I'm not going to give him a lot of credit because that was just the right thing to do. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, it didn't seem like a hard decision, but he did the right thing um but after that we had to redesign our gates the old process would be you come in uh we would check your tickets and if you had bags after you got into the gate we checked to make sure there's no alcohol in it Mm -hmm. and now everything was done outside we wouldn't let bags be brought in if bags were brought in we we would check them thoroughly and we would pack down and then it went to wanding and now it's walk through magnetometers so it it has changed quite a bit but you know what um the the um the, the guests the ticket holders it took a while for them to understand and and they're they're okay with it as long as we're consistent in our screening we just don't screen some this individual a little more a little harder than this individual or not screen this individual at all. they want to be safe
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, and i tell people the safest place i think to be at one o'clock on a sunday afternoon in september october november december is a place called metlife stadium because i know what they do there to protect the people from anything that can happen and uh mm-hmm. we do take and it's not just MetLife Stadium, but I think every venue in the country, colleges, even even down to the high schools now, are really looking at you know what do we do to make this the event safe, make it safe for the participants, the coaches, the, the officials, the attendees, and the workers.
0: There are a lot of undercover security, yes, security people at work. Of that course, you don't know about. Of course,
2: okay. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you something that uh, is a best practice for the NFL is uh, is to have undercover uh, staff generally. Uh, at Medlife Stadiums, they're generally law enforcement officers, either retired or, um, you know, um, just, you know, working the vet that day. Uh, not, not, you know, not, they're, not in, they're not on, uh, uh, you know, they're off duty, but they'll walk around in opposing team's uniforms. So they'll walk around in Eagles uniforms, 49ers uniforms, Seattle Seahawks mm-hmm. uniforms, and they're not asking for people to, to confront them, right. but people confront them. Right. And what eventually happens is, you know, it's, you ever see the movie Ghost? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know the, the the perpetrator who kills the uh, the actor and the ghouls come and get him and take him down a mm-hmm. sewer. That's what happened. You, you never yeah. see him again. You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, so we yeah we do we do we don't we don't um, we don't bait them. But if they come up and start using foul language and start getting some uh, these guys' faces, they will be removed from the from the venue. So let's talk about some of the the
1: more amazing <coughs> technology that you've seen to improve the fan experience outside of security, um, in your time around Stadia. You know, what are some of the things that have really changed to, for the better for everything that's going on, other than security? Obviously.
2: Well, obviously the, you know, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, you never heard the word fan experience. It was true. You know, win the game, just win the game, and everybody's right. happy. Right. Uh, and now if it takes that, an hour to get out of the
0: parking lot. That's your problem.
2: Well, but we also care about that a great deal. Because, yeah. You know, well, somebody's driving. That still el- needs improvement, in my well, opinion. Well, uh, but don't leave early. We don't. That's one thing we don't yeah. want you to do. You come to MetLife. You know, if you get a flat tire on the way to the game, there's probably not much else you're going to be able to do that, that day to make it a great experience for you. You're, you're screwed, and we're screwed. But, um, you know, the Wi-Fi obviously is, is big. Uh, if, if you don't, you know, Verizon is one of our corner sponsors at MetLife Stadium. If you're, if you're you know, Wi-Fi and if you're not have the ability to upload or download, or, um, and, and, of course, every building out there that's coming out, you know, Levi's Stadium and now, you know, uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, you, you have to have the ability to communicate. Uh, and it's not just texting. It's just not phone calls. It's really uploading, downloading pictures and video. <laughs> That's huge. Um, so is it
0: just simply a function <coughs> of just more
2: uh, Wi-Fi infrastructure, essentially? Yeah, it's Wi-Fi plus distributed antenna systems. They're right. you know, putting antennas where sometimes the signal right. cannot be received. So, you know, there's a lot of these stadiums that open up. You know, they spend, you know, over a billion dollars to build these things, and they go back in a year or two later. You know, And, you know, we try and get the... Uh, uh, telecom companies will come in and and pay, and pay for that, mm-hmm. but you ha- you have to have it. I right. mean, you just have to have it. Right. Um, and, and and I think any sport speed of service is important. So you're starting to see, you know, at, at the concession stands, uh, you know, point of sale systems, uh, you have the ability to pre-order and go pick up. Uh, I know Levi's Stadium right now they have the ability. They say, and I, I believe them, that they you can pre-order and it'll be delivered to your seat no matter where you sit in the stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, that's kind of reserved for the uh, you know the club seats, the you know the premium premium sections. Uh, but speed of service, you know, obviously monitors throughout the building. Replays, um, you know, everybody uh, wants you to the replays. They want to see the stats. Uh, so that, that's extremely important. Entertainment, uh, you know, a lot more entertainment, I think, in an NFL game uh, in between plays and in between quarters than even, even at baseball games. So you got to keep them engaged, and you have to be able to answer their questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have a text messaging system that originally designed, if you have a problem in your seating section, you text us, somebody will respond to it, and we'll send people to the section, whether it be security or ushers. Um, we get questions all the time. Hey, I've got this parking pass. It says 9, and we tell them, what's well, that's the game number, you know, what colors your pass. And, you know, they want to know what time did the trains leave, what time did the bus leave. So the text messaging system has become even more of a, you know, um, you know A to Z answers than it is, although it is used quite often for, not quite often, but used for problems in, in areas.
0: And that's similar to something we discussed <laughs> in this podcast a couple months ago with Donnie White, yep. of Satisfy, that using artificial intelligence yep. that ultimately can be a feature yep. within an app or on Facebook right. that essentially uh, establishes a whole library of answers to those most frequently asked yep. questions yeah, from visitors to the stadium. I don't know if you've yeah. worked with any yes, of that.
2: Yes, yeah. yep. and we're also you know, working on the ability now. Our vice president of safety services, Danny DiLorenzi, you know, we're trying to figure out a way. How do we communicate with the fans if there's an emergency, if there's an active shooter, right. if there's something really serious, how do we send a text out or communicate social media so that everybody in the building, other than PA system and your, your video boards and your LED system, because we do have people that are not in the building but are out in the parking lot so right. we want to be able to communicate with yeah. them. Well, That reminds me, do you remember that night
0: uh, a year or so after Giants, the new Giants Stadium opened? MetLife Stadium. They Met, pay, a lot, sorry, of money. Met, they pay a lot of money for that. So right, MetLife Stadium, My yeah. bad. Um, mm-hmm. when there was a blackout yeah, during Cowboys Monday G- night. Monday I was at that game. Cowboys game. And there was, there was that moment, the first couple of minutes after the, the lights went down, where people were kind of freaking out. Well, about I'll
2: that. tell you a little story about that. Is, uh, I was in an, the upper I was, section, in, I was in the upper level, and yeah. I saw some of the lights go out. And uh, I knew that wasn't a good thing. And I also knew <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah, there's facilities and was, management 101. <laughs> and it wasn't going to get any better. I knew that, no lights that some lights day. went out. they probably weren't. The other yeah. lights were going to go out before the, the lights that went out were going to come back on. So I go running down to uh, the security area, and now I'm a consultant. So I don't, I don't, I can't direct right. people. The only time I really get, I'll get involved and direct if it's a, a safety issue. So I just went down there to see, you know, what I could add if I was asked. And uh, we made a we made a call uh, over, uh, you know, our system, and it, it said um, it was a verbal call. And, and we made a call that it was this was not a terror this is not a terrorist act or incident well you know what happens 50 percent of the people hear the word not and the other 50 percent of the people don't hear the word not uh so we you know it's obviously lessons learned i think that was it might have been year one 2010 where now we have programmed uh in spanish and in english you know responses to things that, that happen so you know good lessons learned and it's something that we just don't you know, uh, you know, put in our little locker and, and not share. We thing about the world that these operate, we live in is we all share information because I'm a firm believer if something were to happen at a, a college basketball game at Topeka, Kansas in October and is a terrorist incident, it's gonna impact us on a Sunday uh, at a football game. Yeah. A good example, uh, the uh, attacks in Paris. Um, we were concerned not so much about fans not showing up that Sunday, because that happened on Friday. We were concerned about staff. Not showing up on Sunday because of what happened on that Friday, and of course, you know, thank goodness for you know the individuals that manage the uh, safety s- uh, services and, and uh, guest services. They reached out to the people and say, "We really need you. We really need you," and people showed up and did their job.
0: Are any of the facilities you're working <coughs> with now or in the near future um, using or thinking about using facial recognition technology? And can you explain that for everybody's benefit?
2: Sure. Uh, I mean, facial, facial recognition has been around for a long time. Um, there are um, many organizations that do use it. Uh, it. Right now, there's, it's, a, it's a big discussion topic within sports uh, because, you know, some of the systems, you know, if it's somebody's wearing sunglasses, they have a hat, uh, you know, they have their head down, they know they know kind of where the cameras are, it's not going to work. Uh, but, you know, if you look and if you read about what's going on in China right now, I think uh, in China probably about three or four years, almost everybody in that country They'll be in, in a facial recognition system. So they're actually—I uh, just read something recently where a couple of guys were at a concert and they were wanted. You know, and they—they they saw that they were a concert. They apprehended the concert. Wow. I'm not saying that's going to happen here. And this
0: is typically—it's captured in the walk-in,
2: yeah, and the end It would be captured anywhere. Yeah. The—the the, the challenge you have with facial recognition is, what do you want to use it for? Right. Uh, do you want to stop terrorists? Well, well it okay, could be for marketing all, too, right? Okay, right. I, well, absolutely, absolutely, but. You know, the side that I'm looking at right now is, do you want to stop bad guys? Well, you know, we don't really have a lot of terrorists in this country. and Because we don't have a lot of terrorists, the database is really, you know, slim to none. Mm -hmm. Are you looking for felons? Well, then, yeah, we do have a a pretty good database if if law enforcement is willing to share it with us. But getting to your point, and I think this lends to any technology, you know, you have to be able to justify with ownership and the people that are, are paying for these systems is, I don't think it could be a a one-way system anymore. Um, For example, uh, you know, uh, whether it be a license plate reader or facial recognition, you want to be able to use it for security. I think you want to also be able to use it for marketing and data, Mm -hmm. capturing data. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, obviously with these cameras, you can catch them at entry. You can catch them at concession stands. I saw saw one
0: bill that that actually captured (coughs) I think the company exists. I think they're a part of the LA Dodgers Accelerator. I forget their name. That actually captured sentiment based on the. What's f- happening the during face. the course of the game? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, to see how the audience was essentially reacting, and they had yeah. all these uh, variations of different facial. Components right, right, and how they normally are, right. and, and what they're like when they're happy, yeah. when they're angry, yeah. when they're frustrated. No, and I mean, that's that. a pretty that's interesting a, thought. It, it is. It is. Part, partly, to, you know, from from just a fan. As yeah. we, uh, and that's another cliche, right. but a fan engagement standpoint to say, "Wow, this game is really boring." A lot of people in the stadium right now. Not that you can necessarily change the game on the field, but <laughs> but I think it's back to the
2: marketing guys and gals and uh, organizations. Want to know? Who's in her building? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have four season tickets to the Giants games. Um, I'm a season ticket holder. I, I don't attend games because I'm working the games. So I, I sell my tickets at face value, uh, season tickets as, as, at, to friends. And so when those tickets get scanned, the system says Bill Squires is in the right. house. It's yeah. not me. It's right. four people. And, 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 have so they, and it's just Bill Squires and, four that, times, basically. Exactly right. yeah. So to be able to you know capture who's actually coming in, uh, and that's why I think, so, you know, license plate recognition is something that, that makes some sense. You know, as cars are coming in, you're capturing a license plate, you know, you're not going to borrow somebody's car to go to a football game. right? So, you know, you're looking at the tickets, you're looking at the license plate, and you might be able to marry those up. And for, for marketing and uh, the departments to understand who's really in your building, I think I read something just recently that one venue says they know 33% of the people who are in their building. Like, they know, but they don't know who the other 67% are. Wow. You know, so
0: and That's a big, big miss. Yeah. yeah.
2: So I mean, right now we rely on surveys, you know, and uh, we know that, you know, not everybody comes to every game. And uh, and you get fans, you get these surveys from people who might have been in one game in three years, and they kill you because, you know, they had a bad experience and uh, they have no other things to compare it to. So being able to – no one who's in your building, I think, is important. So going
1: forward in this country, we're going to have probably in Olympics, a World Cup. Um as you look ahead and, you know, even beyond Tokyo uh, and obviously the World Cup that's going on now, um, are there one or two things that stand out that you say, man, I can't wait until this is adapted across sports? Adopted. Adopted. Yeah, yeah. What did I say? Adapted. Adapted, adapted yeah. adopted. Yeah. Tomato, tomato. I
2: mean, that, that, that's, a great, that's a great question. Yeah, it is. Uh, because I think, uh, you know, when you, when you look at security, tip of the spear, I think when you look at uh, what we're doing at concessions, um, I think we're, we're, we're great. I, I still, I wish there was, um, I'm always ho- looking for that better way to, to get cars in and out, get people in and out, mass transit, whatever it may be, um, because it seems, it seems to me, as a matter of fact, in the class that I teach here at Columbia, uh, the midterm assignment is that the students have to come out and evaluate a, a game, a Giants game. And one of the uh, aspects of the assignment is they have to tell me, you know, from the time they leave their front step of their apartment or house or condo or whatever, till they get to the stadium, what route they took, how long did it take? Mm-hmm. And also on the return trip, because I don't get to make those return trips. I get there an hour before the, uh, the toll plaza is open. I leave three hours after the game's, game's, game's over. So I never experience traffic. And I take that information, and I do share it with, uh, you know, with our director of parking and traffic. So um, if, if, there's, if there's a way to transport people better, get mm-hmm. them to their seats quicker, you know, speed of service is always something that we're going to be looking for. And you talk about World Cup, um, you know, it's almost impossible to design a stadium to satisfy the needs of a World Cup uh, because they, they eat, drink, and use the restrooms before the game, which is pretty easy because you got plenty of time. They go to the game, they watch, half, they watch, and at halftime they all want to do all that over again and be yeah. back in their seats for kickoff. Yeah. In 15 and that, minutes, right. And to do that is virtually impossible. You can't – I mean, you could possibly design a stadium – but it's going to cost you just a number of restrooms going to, have to put in the building, the points of sale for food and beverage. Mm. Uh, so, um, one other question before we get to our, uh,
1: <coughs> our, our wrap-up questions: uh, I've seen and I've talked to some people at Stadia around the country, and you've seen kind of what the A's have done with their distressed area. The Jaguars have a section. Are you concerned at all with now sports gambling now coming in, or you know what people have done with fantasy areas? where there are going to be so many other things to do at a stadium where people aren't going and ever paying attention to the game uh, and what that looks like visually. Are there ways that you think that that can be handled better or will be adapted as
2: we we move forward? Now, you know, talk about different sports, you know, football, baseball, um, you know, and and basketball and hockey. I mean, at football you have really at home you have eight games that matter. You know, you have two preseason games you know Mm -hmm. you're never going to really draw um, you know, baseball, you have the 81, you know, and hockey and basketball, you have, you know, 40, 40 plus. Um, I think it's tough for a, a fan today to really go to all those games. Right. Um, so I, I think football, uh, in, in most cases, you know, we're not, uh, at least I could speak on the Giants' behalf. You are know, always concerned about putting 82,500 fannies in every single seat, every single game. Mm-hmm. It's not always possible, but you know, what they've done at the Jaguars with the, uh, uh, the, you know the pools and the cabanas and whatnot. Hey, I, I, I laughed at that, but it's worked. It's yeah. real, absolutely worked We've for seen that. It? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's the, absolutely Spur,
1: the Spurs have a section in San Antonio. Yep,
2: it, it, they, it, it's yeah. actually where I mean, Dimebacks. Remember when they opened up? Yep. Old, it was old Bank of American. Ball, it was yeah. Bank One Ballpark, yep. and they had a pool in right center field. I said, what, "What the heck's that all about?" Yep. But, but you know what? We're starting to see if you if you look at the Seattle uh, at Safeco Field, they have a bar in the outfield that you can't even see the field. You see, TV, it's like a bar. You'd be downtown, yeah. but people want to go there because it's part of the action. Right. Uh, Colorado, uh, the uh, Coors Field, they have a section that overlooks the city, but you don't see what's going on in the seating area. Look what the Yankees did uh, with those seats that were designed, and they couldn't see—you yeah. know—they couldn't see r- 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 left field. That's from by them. the hard rack. R- 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 exactly. So now they've created areas, and mm-hmm. what we find out for the millennials: mm-hmm. millennials don't just want to sit in a the seat; mm-hmm. they want to get up, they want to move around, they want the ability to do different things in the venues. So I definitely think you're seeing that uh, quite a bit. Look at um, Phillips Arena in Atlanta; they put a barbershop in there, <laughs> they put Top Golf in there,
1: and they put all the sweets. There's a one Top Golf. They did, they did yeah. that. Well, there's really a building. Top Golf. There's a Top, there. top yeah. Golf in there, yeah.
2: and they actually have a an area beyond behind one of the baskets that's a premium area. Yeah. They took the seats out, now it's a premium area. So some of these things that you look think at the USTA like USTA and all things USTA you know, thing. you oh, look yeah. at some of these things that doesn't make sense, but you know, it's the, I give credit to these people, the architects and the senior leadership. At these teams and venues say, listen, you know, I always believe if it doesn't work, you just go back to what the way it was. Right. Yeah. But they are taking chances, and it seems to be working.
0: Mm. Yeah, we've mentioned <laughs> it before, Joe, but I would, I would finish this point by saying that for for baseball, especially those stadia that have the clubs, the, the legends clubs or whatever they're right. called, where you have that perception. It's not a perception. The the visual on TV. The gluttonous was a, was reality. Essentially an empty... So, an almost empty section right behind home plate well, I, I, t- I think looks horrible for the sport <coughs>
2: excuse me I've been to Yankee Stadium and you'll know why if you've been there I've, yeah. I've been there and I've done I've spent as much time in the club
0: 17 bags, s- club 17 bags of Cracker Jacks you right. just yeah, need how more do you say how do you say the sushi bar I can understand but what do you think of that I mean is that a good idea ultimately because part of what that everybody's trying to do is create a product for media, for television especially, and well, part I of think, that is the
2: appearance. I, I think, you know, at the beginning, at Yankee Stadium, people are like, where is everybody? <laughs> but now if you look in the fifth or sixth innings, people are in the seats. No. I think people know now that there's a club down there, and it's uh, it's worth it. I mean, it, it all comes down to, you know, economics, and the economics mm-hmm. seem to be working. And maybe the Yankees no. right now are not the right team to be talking about it because, you know, they're doing, they're okay. doing okay. All okay. right,
0: part B to that question, a really mm-hmm. quick one.
2: Mm-hmm. Two
0: three years from now, or maybe less, will we see the equivalent of sports books inside a place like MetLife physical Stadium? Physical sports books. I, I think physical so. Physical sports books.
2: Well, I, I don't know about physical sports books, but I know in New Jersey, you have the ability to do it online. Right. You know, so I, so I don't know if you really need the sports books but, there. But to your point about millennial
0: interests and in behavior, if they're going to want to play Top Golf, then they're right. going I, to want to bet I, if they I, can.
2: I, I do, and. Uh, I just don't think there's any way around it. Yeah. Putting greens. We need putting greens. Yeah. So I mean, you know there would what? need to be
0: a stipulation by yeah. the the, the uh, state, right? right? State, that that the, it would be
2: allowed in a, yeah. in a facility. And, and, and the and, NFL would and, have to. And the play. leagues, right. obviously. I'll tell you, it's a flashback to Giant Stadium uh, before cell phones. And I can remember, you know, you walk around the concourses. You know, once the gates open, there's nobody on the concourses. And that's about 10 minutes before kickoff. And all the pay phones. The lines oh, were just… Yeah. 20, yeah, 30 feet long, yeah. and it was all the guys and gals calling her bookies to place their bets. And it was it was incredible. <laughs> they were, we're checking just, in um, with their moms. I'm yeah. All <laughs> so, you know. right, Joe, last, last so, so the two
1: questions, um, how do you stay informed? And then obviously we've got a lot of people who listen uh, who are either changing careers or starting careers. Um, developing their careers. Developing careers. careers. What do you tell people? So how do you stay informed and then what do you tell
2: them? Well, uh, staying informed is easy. I'm pretty active. Uh, I, I read sports business Journal from cover to cover, and uh, I do that because you know, I pretty much know what's going on in the world of facilities, but to read about media and sponsorships and marketing and and all the various companies that are out there and analytics and stuff that I just you know I'm not exposed to on a daily basis. it really I think makes me smarter. It certainly helps me carry in a conversation with people from uh, other organizations that that have specialties in those areas. That's one. I think teaching this course you know, really um, it helps me um, become smarter because of the questions I get asked by the students. Um, I always tell the students when it comes to their final um, their final paper, if I can learn something from that paper, it's mm. going to give them you know a little bit more on their grade. Uh, so they, they do their best to That's try and teach me something. I like that. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, get in the industry. It's a uh, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of programs out there. I think there's over four, 400 programs that have an undergrad, grad, or a PhD degree, <clears> and there's not Number, the same number of jobs that are, that are associate with that with that uh, uh, with the number of graduates are coming out. But there's so many things. It's you know I, I, I'll talk to people like, what do you want to do in sports? I want to work for the Yankees. Go away. <laughs> I want to work for a professional team in New York City. Okay, now we're talking. Well, I don't care where I work. It could be minor league baseball. It could be WNBA anywhere in the country. Well, now we're talking. Now you've got an opportunity, and you see so many people that. They don't want to be getting sales, but that's where it's at. You know, yeah. selling those tickets. That's where you make your mark. Minor league baseball. I, I always encourage young people coming right out of college, undergrads, getting minor league baseball because there's always turnover. They're always looking for people. And you get to work so many different jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and don't forget about the corporate companies out there. There's Nike. There's Under Armour. There's Gatorade. There's Pepsi. They all have sports-related uh, departments that either do special events or or whatever so there's I think there's a lot of opportunities you just have to look mm-hmm. um, and like I said don't don't just put that graduate degree behind your desk and expect that uh, you're gonna get a call the next day you know you got to get out there and you got to beat the pavement but you also have to have a job to pay the bills until you find that job and even if you get a job in sports that you don't really like do it build the resume in the meantime when you're getting paid building the resume you can apply for other positions Right. Yep. Bill, a quick follow-up <clears> on that so you talked before about
0: operations and how you learned the, you learned the operational expertise being in the military, in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Um, just just for, for those listening on the career subject who might be interested in operations or starting to think about operations, which really is a whole kind of part of the business unto itself, what are the key skills people need to be good operators?
2: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I always say this. Um, all this analytics and all these courses we teach in this university and (laughs) if you don't have the brick and mortar building and the field to play on, none of this other stuff matters. You know, so it all starts with us. Um, I'll say, um, you know, the the job that we have is if if you don't want to work weekends, nights, um, or holidays, then you might as well think about another line of work because you do do all that. If you you like your eight-hour days and no more than that, then that's not our job. You know, on a game day, uh, the, the, the president and CEO of MetLife Stadium, Ronnie Vandeveen, will show up at 7, 8 o'clock in the morning for a 1 o'clock game, and he won't leave until 8 o'clock at night on a Sunday. And that's that's just uh, – I can't say it's typical for every president and CEO, but that's, that's Ron. But um, – and I always tell people I'll never – you know, I was never going to be a millionaire doing this, but I challenge anybody to, to tell me that they've enjoyed what they've done more in the world mm-hmm. of sports than me. The people that I've met, the things that I've seen, um, um, the opportunities uh, to, to, to move around a little bit. You know, I've worked Super Bowls now. Um, you know, and I've, like I said, met the Pope. I worked an Army-Navy game, which was a big deal for me. World Cup 94 was absolutely tremendous. Old-timers day working at Yankee Stadium so um you are know, there any
0: specific hard skills though that you can that hard you can skills you, you know
2: you, like it, if you're looking at a, yeah, a, a it's, person it's, coming it's, like when you were hiring people. this is a skill there's two things i teach my class day one uh is is it, it comes back from the naval academy it comes back from my service as um, don't ever say i don't know it's i'll find out i'll find mm-hmm. out we I, mm-hmm. I know people don't know but you got to find out you know one of the things we do at Medlife stadium somebody asks you uh, uh, usher a question they don't know the answer they get the location of the person's seat because they don't want them to miss one play. They get the answer and they go to the seat and give the person that answer. Mm-hmm. And then number two, I think when it comes to operations, proper prior planning prevents poor performance. Wow! You know you got to you think say that about one more time, proper proper prior planning prevents poor performance. There's another P in there, but I know we've got a G audience out there that I won't <laughs> throw out. But you know when I go to bed at night, I think about everything I have to do the next day. That's me. That's the military in me. Um, I also believe. You know, early is on time, on time is late, late is inexcusable. And operators can't be late. You can't start the game late because you weren't prepared. So it's being organized, it's being prepared, it's thinking ahead. And I really do think that, you know, even though we all think we're the smartest guys in the room, there's a lot of people out there that are smarter than us. To surround yourself with those people. And not only those people, but to talk to the ushers, the concession stands workers, the people who are cleaning up the building, talk to them, ask them, what can we do to make your job easier and make the fan experience better? They're never asked that question. They don't think they're that important. And I'm telling you, mm-hmm. they got their finger on the pulse and they will give you the, they'll give you some great insight. Yep. So to not only survey your fans, but to survey you know, your workers and, and let make sure your workers are appreciated because <clears throat> I always tell people when I walk around the stadium, if I don't come to the game, nobody will notice. If you don't come to the game, everybody will notice. <laughs> So it's uh, it's it's uh, it's it's a great environment, and I always say you can't. I'll end on this note. We can we can um, uh, we have an impact on everything that happens on the on the day of the game, even even including the field of play. We just can't control the play on the field. Right. So, but everything else we have control over. Cool,
1: Bill Squires. It was a pleasure having you on the Cusp Show today. Nah, I Man, was terrific. Once again, you talk about when we want to learn. We learned a hell of a lot. Right. In 45 minutes. To the end. only thing
0: I didn't hear that I was hoping to hear was how he was planning to improve the parking egress, uh, parking lot egress at Giants at yeah. MetLife Stadium. because well, after all these years,
2: it's still pretty bad. I, I will say <laughs> this <laughs> about that: <laughs> you have 28,500 parking spaces. You have roadways that are, you know, major, major uh, thoroughfares throughout the state of New Jersey. But when everybody stays they have a Cowboy game and it's an extra, you know, it's overtime or it's a, uh, you know, it's a field goal with the last second, everybody's at the same time. We can get you out of the parking lot. We just can't get you down the roads. So when the roads go from four lanes to three lanes to two lanes, that's where the problem is. Yeah. It's not the parking lot. See, that's stop what, well, And that's what my
0: friends and I are some of those savvy New Yorkers who would be sprinting to our cars at the mi- in the middle of the fourth quarter. We don't want you doing that. <laughs> We're not going to make any more we money no off choice, you, but we though. need you to cheer. <laughs> yes.
1: Once again, this was the Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. Tom, another great show. Huh? That
0: was great, Bill. Thank you so much, yeah. Bill Squires uh, from Right Stuff Consulting. If anybody has any questions or interests in the world of facility management, he's the guy to talk to. Also, for those of you lucky enough to be associated with Columbia, so students that is, or prospective students, uh, Bill's class is extremely popular, and he's he's one of our along with Joe Favorito, yeah. my partner, long the tenured, most longest tenured faculty members, so yeah. congrats on that, <laughs>
2: Bill, too. Well, I'm going to hang in as long as you hang in.
0: I, I'm not going anywhere. It's a deal. So. So. Well, I don't know. We have All to go right. ask Scott. Anyway. Thanks, everybody. Yep. We'll see you soon.